Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your story. Thank you for creating us, for giving us life, not just physical life, but life in the sun, eternal life. Father, help us to be a people that learn, that discern the times, make us hungry and thirsty for you, for your word. Give us the grace to obey and to walk according to your spirit, that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh and be driven to and fro by every wind of doctrine in this world that we live in. Help us to be firmly planted in Jesus that we would shine brightly as lights in the darkness for your glory. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've, um, we've come up to about 135 A.D. We kind of went through the second Jewish revolt last week. Uh, so the temple has been destroyed. There was one last Jewish uprising in 132 to 135 that was squashed by Rome. And the Jews were literally um, taken out of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and sent to the uttermost parts of the world. Uh, after that, the Jews were not allowed to establish a foothold in Jerusalem any longer. They were allowed there once a year under Roman rule. Um, and there was no opportunity for worship or for anything that would remotely look like the Jews had a foothold or a homeland. Um, and so worship became centered in the synagogues in each individual city or village or wherever you had 10 or more faithful Jewish men, you could have a synagogue. And so what happened basically in Babylon, that synagogue system remained from the Babylonian captivity all the way through and still remains today in terms of the Jewish faith. Of course, the church had heeded the warnings of Christ and had abandoned Jerusalem as he told them to. And the church was going to the other parts of the world in obedience to the commission Christ gave her, not because she was driven there, but because she went there out of obedience to disciple the nations. So when we come to the end of the first century and we enter the second century, we know that persecution has arose. So the persecution of the church went from the Jews persecuting the church to now the Romans and the Jews were persecuting the church. But after the second Jewish revolt, the Jews kind of were demoralized and really were attempting to survive, if you will. It's not that they didn't thrive. It's not that they didn't prosper. But 
They didn't have a nation. They weren't a cohesive nation, but they were a cohesive people. And their history is really quite amazing when you consider all that they have been through, and yet they have maintained their identity. And I believe that is the grace of God uh, on the Jewish people who need Jesus desperately today, just as we all do. So as the church enters the second century, the most grave danger that Christianity was facing was not persecution, actually. Persecution was certainly a danger facing the church in the second century, but it wasn't the most grave danger facing the church. As Christianity moved out of the first century and into the second century, the most grave danger facing the church or facing Christianity is that Christianity would become just another one of the mystery religions or cults that filled the Roman Empire. Or even that it would be absorbed back into Judaism and lose its identity. That's what many people thought would happen. That's what many Jews thought would happen. Uh, it's interesting, there were other religions that had similar, for instance, the, um, the Madonna and Son, Mary and baby Jesus. You, that was not unique to Christianity. The Egyptians had a Madonna and Son, if you will. The, Egypt, the, the Persians had one. And... Critics would say, well, Christianity borrowed from those other religions. I reject that completely, just like I don't believe a flood story was written into the Bible because every other culture had a flood story. I believe a flood story was recorded in the Bible and every other culture has a flood story because there really was a flood. And these other False religions had similar icons, similar mythologies, similar beliefs that we see in Christianity, not because they had them first, because the counterfeit has always existed. And the counterfeit exists to try to distract from the true. And we as Christians should not be distracted from the true as we look at counterfeits. And so as the second century opens, the years 100 to the years 200, the danger facing Christianity is this danger from heresies, from other false religions, that Christianity just becomes another of the thousands of religions and becomes irrelevant. The work of the early church fathers was instrumental in the establishment of orthodox Christian belief and practice, the very belief and practices that we have today. They didn't create them. Those beliefs and practices come from the scripture. But the early church fathers wrote out apologetics. They put in on paper and they did the hard intellectual work of actually formalizing and writing out and expressing those arguments to counter those heresies that existed. 
And so the early church fathers helped Christianity find its feet so that it would be established and stand the test of time. Now, when we talk about the early church fathers, uh, that is a, a broad phrase that is divided into three categories. So when you talk about the early church fathers, the first category, and it kind of goes by, by ages or dates, are the apostolic fathers, um, the apostles. So the apostolic fathers were the early church fathers of the first century, from um, the ministry of Christ to uh, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and into the end of that first century with the passing of the apostles and even those who were direct um, who were direct disciples of those apostles, those then became uh, the stepping stone to the next, which would be the anti-Nicene fathers. So anti-Nicene, A-N-T-E, not anti-A-N-T-I, not opposed to, but before. So when we talk about the anti-Nicene fathers, it's the fathers, the church fathers, before the Nicene Council of 325. So when we move into the second century, the years 100 to 200, that's who we're talking about. The early church fathers or the anti-Nicene fathers. And these were men like Clement of Alexandria or Ignatius or Arrhenius or Justin Martyr. Those were early church fathers who lived and wrote in that second century between 100 and 200 AD. And so what we see is that they wrote works that were in direct opposition to the heresies that were threatening Christianity. And so these early church fathers, in particular the Antonicene fathers, helped Christianity find its feet and become firmly settled before that first council so that when the first council, and we'll look at that when we get there in the timeline, but when the first council is convened, uh, they're not trying to pull together things that are just floating around out there. By the time the first council comes, Christianity is already well-established, well-founded uh, in much of the structure that we know that exists already, that, that exists still today in Christianity. That structure was already set in place long before the first Nicene Council. Um, we don't hear that sometimes. Sometimes when you listen to people who actually don't know the history of the church because they do, you know, cursory searches in Google or they read some heretical book or some critic, um, they think that Christianity was this, you know, this loosely, this loose patchwork that had no form, no structure, no firm belief. And this Council of Nicaea just convened under the threat of Constantine and under his, uh, you know, harsh oversight, making them 
adopt books that he wanted, that's absolutely nowhere close to what happened at the Council of Nicaea. It's completely false. But that is the narrative. You hear this word a lot, right? The narrative. It doesn't matter what the facts are. What's important is the narrative. So we have a really good example of this right now in the news. It doesn't matter that the facts are uh, an errant missile from Hamas destroyed, landed in the parking lot of the hospital and killed hundreds of people, supposedly. The facts are that. They have the video evidence. They've got the audio evidence. They've got all the evidence of that. But the narrative is Israel did this. And so world leaders, even our own Congress men, ladies, persons, uh, pick up the narrative because the narrative is convenient to reinforce what they want to be the truth. Well, this is not new. This is exactly what happened back in the day. So, and we still see it. You can still read those writings that present a completely false narrative of what actually happened. But that false narrative is convenient because it is consistent with what I want to be true. I don't want the Bible to be true because if the Bible is true, then that means I'm accountable to it. But if the Bible is just some book that men assembled from their own imagination, however they did it, whenever they did it, uh, if that's what the Bible is, then I'm not accountable to it. I shouldn't even believe it because there's no credibility that would warrant my belief in it, much less my allegiance to it. And so the narrative has been consistently pushed, but the facts are quite different. And so it was the work of the early church fathers, really the hard and the good work of the early church fathers that opposed the heresies and pushed against the narratives that threatened to destroy Christianity. Of course, we know that was not going to happen because this is God's plan. Remember, history is his story. But what's important also for us to realize is that God chose to work through men. So God chose human beings to proclaim the gospel. I mean, God chose human beings in the, in the second century to, to argue and oppose and to destroy those false arguments that tried to present Jesus as something other than what the scripture proclaims him to be. And so these men like Clement and Ignatius and Arrhenius and Justin Martyr and others did this they formed intellectual arguments rooted in scripture against heresies such as Gnosticism. Uh, so it was um, Arrhenius that really put Gnosticism to bed in the second century. And not just Gnosticism, but there were other heresies. He wrote a work called Against All Heresies. And he laid out systematically the doctrines of Christianity in opposition to these heresies. 
There was another heresy called Marcionism. So Marcion, um, in about 144, formed uh, what was called a Christian sect. He considered himself Christian because he believed Jesus was the Son of God. But he believed that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different gods. They were not the same God. And so he did believe Jesus was the Son of God, just not the God of the Old Testament. And so it was the early church fathers that pushed against that, did the good work of using the scripture to refute those arguments and to show that Jesus is the son of the one true and living God. The, Marcion, the, 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 the people that followed Marcion, uh, his sect rejected the Old Testament. So when you think about, think about that for a moment, there aren't people today who might be able to tell you who this guy was or even, what, even that he existed, but do you know people? Have you ever talked to people who seem to believe that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods? That we had one God in the old, he was mean and grumpy and killed a bunch of people, but the God of the new is loving and he embraces everyone and it doesn't really matter what you believe. This is, there's nothing new under the sun. These are the same old heresies that the enemy's been using for centuries since the beginning of creation, wrapping them in different packages. But when you open them up, they're the very same thing. Uh, docetism was the same thing. So docetism was this belief that Jesus truly was the son of God. He was uh, all that uh, he was supposed to be, except he only appeared to be in a physical body. He didn't really have a physical body because what... What, um, what God would actually have a physical body? So the docists were kind of tied with the Gnostics uh, in this belief that spirit is good and flesh is evil. And, um, you know, the, it's like when Paul preached on Mars Hill and he preached to the, the Greek philosophers and they were okay with him until he got to the part about Jesus being resurrected in a physical body. And they said, oh, Sorry, you lost us right there because if your God was really any decent uh, God, he would, never, he would never embrace a physical body. We're all working to get rid of our physical bodies. And, and so as a result of that, in Gnosticism, what you did in your physical body didn't really matter. So sleep with whoever you want, uh, have as much illicit sex as you want, do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter because that's the flesh. What's important is the spirit, knowledge. And, and so the secret knowledge that I've got to get to one day shed my body and, and set my fear, spirit free. Well, Christianity does talk about the cutting away of the flesh, it is true, but not so that we can shed our bodies permanently and set our spirits free, because the Bible is very clear that one day we're going to actually have redeemed bodies, glorified bodies. So the point is not for us to get rid of our bodies. The point is that we would be conformed to Christ uh, 
spirit, soul, and body. And in the resurrection, in the bodily resurrection of the believer one day, we will have a body conformed to the glorified body of our Savior. So these heresies had all sorts of components like that. They had, they had things that were like, um, they had elements of truth but they were filled with lies and they had enough elements of truth where it seemed like it was okay, uh, but it wasn't. And so it's the same world we live in today. There's a lot of things out there that sound good, sound noble, sound helpful. But you have to be careful because there's elements of truth in every good heresy. There's elements of truth in every cult that will lead you straight to hell. And the enemy does that because he, that's how they become appealing to people. And people don't do their due diligence and measure them against the scripture. They just are moved by their emotions, moved by their feelings, moved by what they want to be true instead of Allowing the word to be that benchmark that determines what actually is true, no matter what my feelings might be. So, for instance, there's a work called The Shepherd of Hermes. It's written in, in about 140, uh, in the year 140. And it's not that this work is something we should get um, um, truth from, it's not inspired. But what's interesting about the shepherd of Hermes is that it pictures for us a highly developed system in the church. So it's got bishops, it's got deacons, it's got priests, it's got, it's got the system by which the church is able to operate. It's the same thing we see in the scripture. So for instance, let's go to an example of this in the scripture. Let's go to Exodus chapter 18. In Exodus chapter 18, we have Moses with his father-in-law, Jethro. And the Exodus has taken place and Israel has come out of Egypt and now they're marching around in the wilderness. And Jethro, now that uh, Moses and the children of Israel are out, he's going to go back home. And then Moses says, oh no, please don't go back home. Stay and help us. We can use your wisdom. We can use your your knowledge. And so Jethro agreed to stay and help Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel. Verse 13, Exodus 18, 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses set to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, and he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me and inquire of God. And when they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another. And I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, this thing that you do is not good. 
Both you and this people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen to my voice and I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burdens with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. And Moses, he did the voice of his father-in-law and did what he told him, and it, it worked. Now, why do I read that scripture? So this is the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And remember, we, we kind of, well, I don't remember when we looked at this, but we looked at it at some point. But remember, um, when you count families, women and children and heads of households, you're easily bringing two to three million people out of Egypt. So Moses was leading, let's just be conservative, and it would be very conservative to say that Moses was leading two million people out of Egypt. Imagine Moses having to judge all those things with two million people. Uh, if we even just reduce that down to households, we're talking hundreds of thousands of households that Moses is having to judge and deal with. Jethro sees the problem and he says, whoa. Now, the reason I've read that scripture is because when we get to the, when we get to the second century, we're talking about the church now. And the church wasn't just a large number of people confined in one geographic area like Israel was. Even though Israel was, was, one, was a large group of people, they were confined to a very small geographic area. In fact, during the 40 years of, of wilderness wandering, they're all together in the wilderness. So they're not spread out. They're all together. They camp together. They pitch their tents together. They're all there together. Now think about the church. By the time, now remember, by the time we get to 100, uh, the church has spread. And it's gone to the end of the empire and, and probably beyond. We talked about this last week even beyond the empire. Uh, it was during this second century that uh, Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, sent a gift to the Chinese emperor. Well, what does that tell us? That tells us that Rome and China were trading 
the Silk Road came to the Mediterranean. Marcus Aurelius was aware of the Chinese emperor. He sends a gift to the Chinese emperor in the middle of the second century. That tells us there was a connection there. If there was a connection there with Rome and China, I promise you there was a gospel connection there somewhere. And so my point is, the church now has spread to the ends of the earth. It's not just large in number, but it covers a vast geographic area. How is that going to be managed? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. And we know that by 140, based on this work called the Shepherd of Hermes, there was already, by the second century, this system of uh, of bishops and deacons and priests. They got that from the scripture. They got it from what God laid out for Moses and Israel. And it was a system by which God's people could be shepherded and taken care of. In other words, there was an organization that the church had so that it could efficiently and effectively equip the people, shepherd the people, and fulfill the Great Commission and do all the things that Jesus laid out in his Gospels and do all the things that were laid out in the Scripture, the instructions of how the church was to operate, how it was to function. And so God set in place his shepherds, he set in place those overseers, our words bishop, deacons, priests, those are just our words for what the Bible calls shepherds or overseers or servants or ministers. And so we see in the biblical record, God set up a system, an organized system, so the people of God could be taken care of and shepherded and equipped properly. So by the time we get to the second century, this is happening. And you have the early church fathers who are actively doing the work of opposing these heresies so that the danger, the most pressing danger to the church, does not overcome the church. In 150, the four canonical gospels were collected together, put together. In 150 also, the school of Alexandria was founded in Egypt. It quickly became a major center for both Christian theology as well as Greek philosophy. Uh, the school there in Alexandria lasted for a very long time. There were um, lots of people that went to this school, this university, if you will. Clement was a teacher there. Origen was a teacher there. Origen went off the rails later in his life. Um, but still, these are men worth reading because they, they record for us the history and the life that was taking place back at this time. And it really is important for us to, to be able to see that though a lot of things have changed, there's not there are a lot of things that are still the same. There are still challenges we face today that they faced then. 
Heresies we face today that may go by different names, but they're still the same heresies. And when you read some of these heresies, when you understand what some of these are, you can pick out the cults today, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, uh, these cults, and they're just trapped in these heresies that have existed for thousands of years. In 180, uh, Arrhenus wrote against heresies in an attempt to fight the spread of Gnosticism. And in his works, he provided one of the first great outlines of Christian doctrine. Actually, there was a council in 172 that officially branded Gnosticism a heretical doctrine. It was in 190 that Easter got its official date. So they determined it's why Easter is always on a Sunday. Why is Easter always on a Sunday? Why did the church do that? Why didn't the church just stay with the Jewish calendar and follow the Jewish calendar? Well, one thing is because it moves around every year. Um, but the other is that Jesus, we know Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday because the Jewish feast of first fruits is always on a Sunday. It's the Sunday after Passover. And so they just established um, the time for Easter to be celebrated. It wasn't, um, it wasn't trying to make it a pagan holiday or anything like that. It was trying to bring um, some order to the church so that everybody's not doing their own thing so that the Christian church could have a time where everyone was worshiping celebrating the resurrection. Should we celebrate the resurrection just one time of year? No. Even if we followed a Jewish calendar, would that mean that we are celebrating the resurrection, uh, you know, on the exact anniversary? No, because it moves around. We, we know the day, the feast day, Jesus was resurrected. And so it's like Christmas. The point of Christmas is not to actually celebrate the day Jesus was born. Now, some people believe he actually was born on December 25th. Uh, but I don't think that should be our point. Our point is we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And we can celebrate it on, you know, December 25th, or we can celebrate it on January 6th, or we can celebrate it on whenever we want. But a decision was made somewhere back then, back then, <laughs> that we're going to celebrate it on this day. You're free to celebrate any time you want. I think you should celebrate the birth of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. I think you should remember those and celebrate those frequently. I'm not saying you should have a Christmas tree all year round. I'm just saying the birth of Christ, the resurrection of Christ are not things that we should just remember once a year. We should remember them and celebrate them in a sense regularly. And we do this as we come to the table every week, right? We remember, we proclaim the Lord's death when we come to the, to, to the Lord's table.
By 200, by the end of the second century, the New Testament canon was mostly fixed and it was the New Testament canon that we have right now. For the most part. So by the time you get to the Council of Nicaea, they're not really picking a bunch of new books. These are books that have been used by the church now for two centuries. And they were recognized as the inspired word of God. And what the councils did was just solidify that so that moving forward as the church grows and expands across the world, there will be some cohesion in what the doctrines of the Christian faith are and what would be taught and what would be preached so that Christians, whether they're living you know, in, in Rome or whether they're living in Timbuktu, halfway across the world, we're not learning different things. So every Sunday, and this has been the case since these early centuries, every Sunday we preach the word of God. We're not preaching something different. We're not preaching from a different Bible, a different set of books that they're preaching in, in Ethiopia or Tunisia or, or wherever it might be. And so this was the point of canonizing and solidifying these things. And it was the work of the early church fathers during the second century that laid the groundwork for much of this to take place. They upheld the traditions that were passed down to them by the apostolic fathers who wrote much of the scripture that we read, especially the New Testament scripture, who preserved, as the Jews did, those apostolic fathers also preserved the Old Testament writings, and they recognized, just as the Jews did, that it was the 39 books of the Old Testament, not the apocryphal books that were inspired. They didn't throw away the apocryphal books, but they, they recognized what was and what was not inspired. It's the same thing the councils did. They recognized what was and what was not. So you can read the Shepherd of Hermes, and it, and, and it can teach you things, but you should know it's not inspired. You can read the Didache, and it's, it can teach you things, but it's not inspired. So the apostolic fathers, the early church fathers didn't throw away. They didn't forbid people from reading those. Go read those if you want to, but know that this canonized set of books, this is what is inspired because this is what we've held as inspired now for, for many, many, many centuries. And that was the case then. They were already fixed. Now, we're not going to go there today, but when we get to the third century, well, before I, before I talk about that, any questions about anything we talked about in terms of the second century? This is mostly, I've given you tonight, mostly church history. And we'll uh, get into a little bit more of... Um, the history of the empire and what's going on in the empire when we begin to talk about um, the beginning of the third century. 
So, if you will, um, 4 BC to 100 would be the first century. The birth of Christ to the end of the first century. 100 to 200, that is the second century. So, when we say that the school of Alexandria was founded in 150 AD, it was founded in the second century. Uh, the Council of Nicaea took place in the third century. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, the Council of Nicaea, yes, it took place, it actually took place in the fourth century, 325. But the third century would be from the years 200 to 300. When we get to these years, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, political things um, because... Um, we're going to, when we get to the third century, now we're beginning to see the decline, the slow decline of the Roman Empire. Um, and it will be in the fifth century that we see ultimately its, its fall. All right, any questions about the, the, what we covered in the second century so far or about that time of the church or... Any thoughts? At the Council of Nicaea, Constantine 325. But it was already, those books were already recognized. So the Gospels were already uh, uh, in, in, what did I say, in 190? Um, No. In 150, uh, the Gospels... Um, the four Gospels were uh, canonized, if you will, uh, and recognized that these are the Gospels, the inspired Gospels. There's other books out there that bear the names, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of... Um, those books were not, even in 150, those books were not recognized as the inspired canonical Gospels. In fact, most of those books weren't even written in 150. Most of those books came later. And you can read those books, um, but don't believe that those books are the canon of Scripture because they're not. And they weren't accepted as that even as early as 150. They didn't exist back then. With the with the Eastern Church, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was the same with Christmas, I think. Yeah, they go by a different calendar, but you also have the split. We'll talk about the split later. Yeah, yeah, but there is a different calendar. Yeah, you know we don't realize that, but you can go back and there there are lots of different calendars. Uh, lots of different calendars. And so um, even in Ethiopia, you know, when I went to Ethiopia, they go by a different calendar. They, rec- they, they, they use our calendar because that's what the, the, much of the world uses. But, you know, the Jews have their own calendar. The Ethiopians have their own calendar. Uh, there's a lot of cultures that have their own calendar. 
What else? Anything else? All right, so when we get to the third century, we're going to begin to see uh, the waning of the Roman Empire. It's going to begin to wane. The classical West. So when we talk, you know, for instance, we have a classical school. It's called classical because the method of education goes back to the method of learning that was classical. This comes from the Greeks, the Romans. The Romans got much of what they... Their classical mindset from the Greeks. In the third century, we're going to begin to see the waning of the classical West. So up until the third century, men didn't look into the past and go, oh, I wish we could return to the ways of old. They didn't do that. <laughs> Because with the Greek and the Roman empires and the Greek and the Roman classical systems, slaves were given an education up until that point. That was unheard of. And so it was that system that began to develop. And, and, and God did this, preparing the world for the coming of the gospel. So the gospel would have a vehicle by which it would go to the ends of the earth. By the time we get to the third century, men are beginning to look back and because they're seeing that things are not going as good as they have been. And they're beginning to look back and think about the golden era and realize they're not living in the golden era. It's kind of like America. We look back and we say, man, what's happened to our nation? Where we're at right now is not a good place. And for Rome and for the West, when we say the West, it was the Roman Empire for all practical purposes. For Rome, the, the decline wasn't coming from the outside. It was coming from the inside. And, and that, is, that is the case with us, I believe, today. Now, part of this, um, part of this, too, is the gospel is conquering. The gospel did conquer the Roman Empire. And it did it uh, without armies, with swords and shields and war engines. It did it with the sword of the Spirit. And it's the same way the church is going to win the world today. 